really encourage small organizations, high growth organizations to keep it simple. Um, be brilliant at the basics. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Siege Camp Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about people. And to talk about people and, and growth and your organization, I have the founder and managing partner of Series B Consulting, who also happens to be the author of a book that was just released uh, called Scaling for Success. Uh, I don't know if you want to raise your mug so people can see. Oh. You can get yeah, the merch. The coffee merch. mug as well. There we go. Um, it was just released this July. Um, and it's subtitled as People Priorities for High Growth Organizations. So we're going to dig into that in a little bit. But Andrew is also the head of the People Leader Accelerator, and they've just started a new cohort. Really exciting to hear a little bit more about that. So with that, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Carlos, thank you. Hey, really pleased to be here. So I want to start a little bit about your background. Tell us a little bit before you became who you are today, just how did you get there? I mean, what was the first thing you did after college and just, you know, summarized version of your bio before you became who you are today? Sure, sure. Well, I, I went uh, straight through grad and undergrad, um, uh, back to back with no break other than internships, actually four and a half years combined for those two. So, um, you know, came, came out at age 21 and uh, worked for what was considered the best company in the world at human resources, which uh, back in the day was Pepsi. And uh, General Electric, uh, way back then, was considered a close second which I ended up working for a few years later um, with, a, with a gap in between as the head of HR at a high growth startup uh, founded by partners from McKinsey and Deloitte. And we went international and I think I was a 22 year old uh, global CHRO. Um, very briefly, it was during the dot-com uh, boom and bust, but um, it, was, it was great foundational grounding working at some of the best companies in the world at, at what I do and an early exposure to high growth and high tech. And so fast forward almost 25 years later, and I've uh, worked at a lot of different places, some that you've heard of and some that I'm sure that you haven't uh, across all sizes and stages and industries and had a, had a great ride at a, at a rocket ship of a real estate tech company that uh, went public on my watch. And at a little tiny piece of uh, what is now Invitation Homes. And um, after that, I, I pulled my parachute, hung my single shingle as a uh, consultant, uh, and started working on my bucket list, uh, which included writing Scaling for Success. So that was about three years ago when I, when I started consulting, and I work with a number of high-growth companies, VC and PE back, and then I do some independent uh, mentoring work for heads of HR. Mm. Well, one of the things that I, we were chatting about before we started recording was the moment, and I think this is important, it's the moment that a company merits an HR function and what HR means before that moment from a founder point of view. So because you've worked with a lot of companies uh, leading up to your current consultancy and writing the book, maybe we can start qualifying, like defining defining human resources, defining um the talent function, defining the people function, 
at different stages in a company's growth. Great, great. Yeah, really early on, um, you know, HR is is payroll and benefits and recruiting. Um, you know, with with employee number one, even including the founder, at some point you need to pay yourself. Uh, so that, you know, payroll is often a finance or accounting function, but you know, it can it can live under HR. Uh, benefits, you'll have a really difficult time recruiting anybody that isn't, uh, you know, direct friends or family if you don't offer health insurance, uh, at least in the United States. Um, and so benefits falls falls under there. And recruitment, again, once you get outside of the immediate friends and family network, often when you're trying for your 20-somethingth hire, uh, that's when you need to start thinking about where to find talent to do some of the specialized work, especially in, in high-demand you know, technical uh, roles like software engineering. Mm. So that, that's what it looks like really early on. But the scope of human resources and talent, um, and I, I like to refer to it as people, uh, it's, it's people management, it's people leadership, it's, you know, optimizing um, what you can get done with your team. And so that, that's inclusive of all things management, uh, communications, goal setting, um, performance management, um, you know, from, from top to bottom, it's, it's how does your organization operate and make sure that you get the things done that you want to get done. I mean, that's, that's very broad scope. I mean, um, when you started off defining it, you know, you, you said three things, you know, HR is payroll benefits and recruiting. And to some extent, that's the, that's like a very tactical view of, of HR. And then later you were talking about people management, people leadership, yeah. And what I want maybe to do is, is guide me and the listeners with at what point those two things start forking out. Because like as a founder, yes, there's this sort of tactical stuff you need to do. And then at some point you delegate that. But then the people management stuff, I mean, do you ever really delegate that? And, and maybe this is a good point to inject where you, what titles are relevant for when you start delegating that. So for example, chief of staff. So maybe unpack that. Like, at what point does you start? At what point do you start delegating stuff like payroll benefits and recruiting? At what point do you start bringing in support for people managing people leadership? And what are the appropriate titles to help with that? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I will vastly oversimplify and generalize. So you know, I, I like to give the qualifier of it depends. It depends on your pace of growth and your cash burn and your funding and your field and you know all, all of that. That said. Um, often your office manager, executive assistant, or even founding team will be doing a lot of the basic functions really early on. Um, payroll and benefits should likely be outsourced to what's called a PEO, a professional employer organization, pretty early on. Um, big providers there, Trinet, Sequoia One, Insperity, ADP has a, has a total source. Um, they'll run the back office mechanics for you. And that's, that's a smart way to go up to about 100, maybe even 150 people. Um, and so that'll get all the you know, mechanical wiring of make sure people get paid, make sure people have health benefits. Um, you'll want to look to add a dedicated internal recruiter pretty early as well. Uh, so let's say once you're hiring 10, 12 people a year, or more, a recruiter will easily pay for themselves. So that's often the first dedicated HR type of role inside an organization. So again, depends on pace of growth when, when you might need that role. 
you could get it a little bit earlier and have it split with an office manager or something like that. Uh, but a recruiter tends to be pretty early hire. Um, take the next step. Usually when you get the first round of institutional funding, Series A, that's when you're seeing a director-ish level person being brought on to run, air quote, people ops. And so with that, you're typically on the ramp from 25 to 100 plus people. You're thinking about getting off the PEO and insourcing more of your own administrative and operational processes and putting in place more things to help you manage a larger team. So things really start to get complicated um, when you're at the 25 to 125 range of employees. And, and that's, that's why I called my consulting firm Series B. At Series B, you're typically looking at at least three layers of management, and it's just impossible for a founder or small founding team to know everybody personally, to know exactly what everybody's working on. Uh, nowadays, everybody's distributed anyway, geographically, uh, but that's when some of the people management things really start to get more complicated. And so that's when it makes a lot more sense to have um, somebody with HR business partner, performance, you know, compensation expertise in-house. But prior to that, it, it's more the, more the tactical blocking and tackling, ensuring things get done, uh, hosting events, doing onboarding. Um, and that tactical stuff is important, but it's not really going to be a giant value add. Um, and it doesn't really make sense to bring on board a really expensive, really seasoned person to do a tiny slice of design work for you. Mm. Um, so all that said, and I'll take a breath after this, is uh, it's really helpful early on before you need a seasoned full-time in-house director VP type person to have somebody that's been there, done that. Somebody who can advise the CEO founder what's ahead, how to build things so that they don't break. Um, and, and that's actually a lot of work that I do um, for uh, VC and PE firms is I advise their founders uh, around how to create some of those systems and processes early on. So that's a fractional role. And you know, if, if you don't work with me, work with somebody mm. who's been there, done that, and built out organizations to help you do it so you don't stub your toe along the way. So I've heard different arguments around who that person can be or what role they have. And yeah. you know, I mentioned to you when I asked you the question is like, you know, this, this idea of a chief of staff as somebody who, who kind of does that. Maybe, maybe you can give a view. It's, it's something that's increasingly bubbling up in terms of yeah. roles. And it, it just maybe help define what it is and what, when it fits what you were saying and when it doesn't fit what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but bottom line, having someone help a founder figure out how to operate their business, how to ensure that your goals and priorities are clear. That can be called a chief of staff. That can be called a COO. That could be an investor that's on the board. That could be a formal or informal external advisor. That could be an executive coach uh, for the CEO. Um, it could be somebody in HR. Um, it's really valuable. It's really valuable. Now, that said, two risks, two challenges. Uh, one is you'll probably get a lot of advice from a lot of different places. And so how do you decide who to listen to? And if you keep asking the question of 15 different people, you'll probably get 15 answers. So, you know, if you're just going to shop for an answer, you're wasting your time. 
Um, so I, I would typically suggest find somebody that you're really confident in that you can trust and don't go shopping across a, a bunch of different people for advice and have an ongoing relationship too. So they get to know you, they get to know your business. You're able to get more targeted advice that fits your context better. Yeah. And, and that's the second piece. Context matters way more than content. So one of the risks of having an advisor or bringing somebody in is that maybe they've been wildly successful doing you know, something like what you're doing before. But if they've only had a couple laps around the track, if they've only uh, been successful doing it once or twice, there's this big risk of lifting and shifting whatever happened to work well at their last place without that breadth of knowledge of, hey, what's your entire toolkit and when do you pick what to use? Uh, that's where having an advisor that's really experienced, that's worked with a number of different companies in a number of different situations can help you sort things out versus, oh, when I was at XYZ, when I was at Google, we did this. When I was at LinkedIn, we did that. Well, if, if they keep repeating themselves, they don't actually know what tool to use when. They just know what they happened to do last at, at their last yeah. stop. Yeah, fair fair point. Fair point. Well, I, I want to I take that point to to touch upon something you were saying earlier about getting advice or getting somebody involved. And I want to get a sense for like, when people reach out to you, what is the main, what is the main impetus? Is it, is it usually they've hit the wall and you're coming in and solving the problem? Like, what is the, like, if, if you were a Google search, what is the thing that people are typing in the Google search to, to find you? Um, it's a, it's a couple of different lily pads of work and my, my camera is getting a little fuzzy there. Um, oh, that's no better. There we go. There you go. Yeah. Um, I, I think really my core area is supporting other HR leaders. So that's, you know, series A, B and beyond where you have a relatively early career HR leader who's trying to figure out what's important, who's trying to be influential and effective. And they're in their first top job and they're trying to figure out how to advise a CEO founder who's you know really strong and you know a, a total sponge. And so I'm the mentor for early stage HR leaders. That's what I really specialize in. Um, and the book can be applicable to those HR leaders or to founders directly as well. And, and that's the People Leader Accelerator is what, what I'd consider the best executive education program for high growth HR leaders, um, high growth companies, high growth people uh, that are really trying to stretch themselves. You so that, that's you, my sweet You spot. teed it up. You teed it up, Andrew. You knew where I was going. So <laughs> what we have, we have 12 weeks in your people accelerator. So I'm just going to read them out for you. Um, and I just want to, I want to start delving deep into it because it, from what we were chatting earlier, it maps with your book, right? Like the, the book and the accelerator have the similar structure. So if I look at it, the first week is introductions and objectives, the role of HR in a high growth organization is week two, week three is prioritizing, aligning and influence, then diversity, equity and inclusion, organizational structure, analytics and first half review, talent acquisition, total rewards and EVP, learning and development, culture, engagement and communications, performance management and goal setting, and then HR as a career path and where to go next. And yeah. You know, it's, it seems comprehensive. 
I mean, if I had to come up with something, I don't know if I could come up with anything more than that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, well, you asked early on, like, what what's the scope of HR? And you, you just listed. Uh, and, and notice I didn't list payroll and benefits. Those are more tactical kind of table stakes things. But that, that's the scope of the work. If I would put an extra one here, yeah. I would probably put managing upwards because half the battle is convincing the people that are leading the organization to like listen to you with stuff that you've done that is a sort of a resonance of the entire organization. But maybe maybe you already included it somewhere in there. Yeah, that that is the foundation of the entire program. That's the prioritizing, the lining and influencing. Mm. So, you know, who are your stakeholders? We do a SWOT analysis. We do a stakeholder analysis. We uh, put together a people plan. So making it really clear that what you're working on matter, ensuring that you're working on things that are the most important things for the business rather than whatever your functional focus might be. Mm. That's where this role adds value. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that. well, I want to explore each one of these little um, components of the, of the program in more depth and as they, as they um, correlate to the book. But maybe just to kick things off, um, when, when somebody does bring you into the organization, as you said, you're focusing mostly on helping their, their head of talent or their head of people or the head of HR. Yeah. What is the first thing you do when you arrive? Like what, I mean, there's, as a consultant and as somebody who provides support, there must be a little ritual you have. I'm just curious as to what that is. Well, I think it all starts with a needs analysis. You know, hey, what's going on? How, how are things going? Um, what, what are you looking for help with? Why did you call me? Um, usually when it's the HR person that, that brings me in, they're looking for advice, mentoring, a sounding board. You know, really week one of the program of People Leader Accelerator is really deep on community building and getting to know each other. There's, I, I would argue, there's no more lonely role at a startup than the head of HR. You know, people say that about the CEO founder, but they actually get to call the shots in, in most ways. I mean, the investors, of course, <laughs> matter. Uh, but the head of HR, they're responsible for many things that they don't actually get to call the final shots around. And they're often a team of one. And so who do they turn to when they don't have the right answers or when they're trying to influence a really driven, really bright CEO and they haven't been there, done that? Uh, so that's when people turn to me is when they're trying to figure out how do I, I'll, I'll put it directly, how do I get to be more effective at my job? Mm. Well, I, I want to pick and choose uh, some of the content from your week and uh, from the weeks in, in the program. As they, as the, I think that they might potentially be relevant for like a company that's twenty people or less, or like super early stage. And yeah. feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong in my assumption here. But, and I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go sequentially. I'm just going to jump around a little bit. But, sure. One of the things that stood out to me is organizational structure, which you have as week five. And and the reason why it stood out to me is because it's one of those weird ones where in many ways you can sleepwalk your way as a founder into having a structure that doesn't make sense. And then you have to reorganize and people have titles and expectations associated with it. And then you, you have this organizational debt you've got to clean out. Right. But then at the same time, it's curious to me that you have it in week five when, when in fact, this person who, as you rightfully said, is, is probably one of the loneliest people in the organization then has to try to manage upwards and say, Hey guys, look, you know, this department shouldn't be in this department. And, and I just want to get your sense of, what is the scope of, of that week's 
program and what advice do you have for founders in thinking through how to set up a company organizationally, when to have somebody have an inflated title, when not to have an inflated title, so that you have flexibility in that structure? Um, you know, one of the one of the key things to remember in any sort of high growth organization is that that growth means change and evolution. So whatever works for you at 15 people is probably going to be different than what your company needs at 50. So org structure is, is an important call out there where very early on, most organizations need smart driven generalists that are communicating constantly in a really tight um, knit community. As you get bigger, you need more specialists. People that have great depth in digital marketing or growth marketing versus they're also trying to run payroll um, or they're, you know, whatever it is. So that specialization necessarily drives changes in your org structure. So you, you at one point may not even have titles or everybody's paid the same and, you know, everybody has, you know, equity and some folks may be comfortable and experienced managing teams. Many folks aren't at, at startups. And so that becomes a real challenge for founders and founding teams to make some tough calls around, do I build a team under someone who got me here? Um, somebody who's super valuable that I don't want to piss them off and have them leave. And, you know, so making some of those decisions around how to build out departments, when to hire a pro uh, versus promote from within. And again, it depends, but calling out that as a key and critical decision, if you're only promoting from within, chances are you're going to have a tough time recruiting real talent to work under somebody that doesn't have a network and doesn't have the pedigree and doesn't have that magnetic pull to bring, to bring talent to them. If somebody's really light, chances are they're only going to be able to bring people that are lighter than, than themselves onto their team. How do you, how do you um, recommend to, for founders to plan for that? But at the same time, you have, these people, John, you took a leap of faith super early. And there's sometimes the expectation of what you sold them was that they would be end up in that role. But in fact, you want to leave the option open. What recommendations do you have there in terms of hiring, but necessarily not necessarily shooting yourself in the foot for later when you might need to hire above them? Yeah, well, I, I think you called it out. It's around setting expectations, right? What, what someone did to get you to a certain stage of success, like have an adult conversation saying, Carlos, you were fantastic. You got you developed the product. We launched to market. We raised our initial round of funding. We wouldn't be here without you. And I want you to be here for the next X number of years. What we need to do to take the company to the next level as we build out the, you name it, product team, is to bring in somebody that's led a product team before. And you've got a lot of skin in the game with equity. I want to continue to um, work with you closely. And I need to bring someone in to lead this department that ultimately I think you would report to, uh, but you'll have a lot of say in helping to pick this person. Mm. And so just being really clear up front that different stages of company growth and maturity call for different skill sets and often different leaders. Mm. And so treating it like success or failure, like, oh, I wasn't 
my, my CEO doesn't think I'm good enough to do this at the next level, that really needs to be repositioned. Hmm. Like there's a different time for different skills. Some people have a broader range than others, but it's not a win or a loss if you can't play every single position at every single stage uh, perfectly. So that, that's where expectation setting and adult conversations are really needed. Yeah, actually, that, I'm glad to have heard you say it out loud because I think it's um, it'll be helpful for anybody listening to kind of get a sense for what it, that conversation could sound like. So that was very helpful. If I jump around some more, another one that caught my eye um, is performance management and goal setting. Yep. And I, I skipped over culture, engagement, and communications, not because it's not important, but because there's there's a lot of content out there regarding these. But performance management goal setting is something that I think everyone kind of knows they need to be doing, but I think everybody feels slightly insecure about it. Yeah. And, and what, what would you recommend for a, a team of five so that you get into a good routine for that to scale up and, and, and hit those expectations? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that what you do with a team of five won't scale. And so just anticipate that, that what you're doing for a team of five necessarily needs to be different for a team of 15, and that's different than for a team of 50. And so if you try to hold on to what you did for a team of five, which is generally constant communication and everybody's talking about who's working on what, like you may have daily check-ins with a, with a team of five. At a team of 15, you shouldn't be doing daily check-ins. At a team of 50, you'll, you'll blow up. It just, it just can't work. So pick a process that works for where you're at and don't be shy about adjusting and evolving. And that's where a lot of founders and small teams run into challenges because they want to hold on to the past. So one of the, one of the things that startup leaders often uh, are challenged with is that there's just too much to do. There are too many great ideas and you have a tough time executing all of it. Um, when you're a small team, in constant communication, you can roll up your sleeves and get a lot of stuff done. Your efficiency and your effectiveness tends to be reduced the bigger your team gets because the communication and the alignment and just the complexity of getting stuff done increases exponentially as you bring in more people. So you've got to have a little bit more structure. You've got to have a little bit more dirty word process uh, to make sure that you know folks are working on the right things. Mm. So I'm going to give you a couple of hypothetical situations. I'm wondering what you would advise um, if I were coming to you as a sort of head of people or uh, the, the, the head of HR and struggling with this. So sure. it's not unusual, for example, um, and I think Steve Jobs made this mistake early days, Apple, before he got kicked out, um, is that it's not unusual that you'll have like a small group where everybody's doing everything, everybody talks a lot. But then that group starts becoming bigger and bigger, and you start having a division between, like, let's say, the revenue generating side and the yeah. and the sort of back office. So, for example, let's pretend uh, for this example, it was um, the the people who are doing sales or front end customer service, and yeah. then the people that support them in the operational team. Yeah. And you start seeing this drift, and it wasn't intended to be a drift. There wasn't intended to be a gap, and there's efficiencies in having them have their separate meetings and separate things. And at one point, at maybe when it was seven or smaller, they were all in the same team meeting, but now they have these separate ones. But now there's complaints and those complaints start coming that this hand doesn't know what this hand's doing. This hand wants to be connected. 
And then, of course, that's only going to get worse because those will have sub meetings. And so wondering, how do you like what do you recommend to this head of HR and saying, hey, bring them back together, keep them apart, increase the interval of communication? Like what, what would you do with that mess? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, well, first, I'd call out that what you're talking about are spans and layers. And, and I go into great depth around that in, in the org structure chapter. So span is span of control. So how many direct reports does one manager have? If you have 10 direct reports, that's a span of 10. If I have four direct reports, I have a span of four. Average it out across an organization, it's a span of seven. Layers is how many managers report into managers, report into managers. At a lot of startups, you, you get communication breakdowns where you have really small span and lots of layers. So people tend to strive for flat organizations, but they'll often over, overdo it where they have 20 people reporting to the founder. That doesn't work either, right? So the, the idea is there's a Goldilocks zone where you don't want to have too much or too little of spans or layers, but you want to be you want to be constantly tweaking the dial and be aware of where things getting inefficient and, and be ready to adjust. So to your specific hypothetical, the team's growing. It doesn't make sense to have it all under one roof anymore. Maybe there are 15-ish people doing different stuff. You could start thinking about having a team lead or you know, breaking it out into a separate managerial structure, one for sales, one for customer service. Um, how do you ensure that they're communicating? It depends. You could do a lot of different things. Um, I would encourage groups to be intentional, write it down. So in, in the, the chapter that we, that we skipped over, culture and communications, one of the things that I provide a template for is what is your meeting structure? How often do you have all hands? How often do you have a departmental meeting? How often are you doing one-on-ones? How are you driving cross-departmental communication? So just write it out and if you're a reasonable person that looks at that framework, you could say, oh, there's a gap here. It looks like there's no occasion for customer service to talk to sales. Let's create one. Or, oh boy, we're, we're doing it every day. Maybe it doesn't need to happen that often. Or we've got 15 people in this meeting, we could actually do it with two. So just laying it out on one sheet of paper, what is your meeting structure? What is your communication cadence look like? that allows you to adjust to make it make sense. Yeah. Okay. And then with, with regards to that, um, how do you then prioritize what which one of those? I mean, presumably when you were looking at week three, you were talking about prioritization and presumably like the, sh- the two things line up, but how do you audit that that works? How do you know that that works? How, how do you help a founder or a head of HR work through that? Yeah. Well, first it's, it's clarity, 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 clarity. Um, I love Patrick Lencioni's uh, six questions for clarity. You know, he's the author of the five dysfunctions of the team and the advantage and a bunch of other stuff. Um, So just being really clear, direct, and constantly reinforcing what are the most important things that our company is working on right now. And if you've got some size and some scale where you you have departments or different teams that are semi-autonomous, Maybe those departments or teams will have their short list of things that are most important. Mm. Um, but that, that's the hump that most organizations have trouble with because they're working on too many things. They're nervous about not listing 
the, the, the laundry list, the kitchen sink is in there. It's 27 things that need to happen tomorrow. You got to make some choices, got to prioritize. And so how do you make sure that that's being done? Well, it's because you, it's the founder are doing it, right? It's up to you. You can take input from other, from other sources. You can review the list with, uh, with your broader team. Uh, but ultimately it's up to you, um, what the most important things are right now. Um, and I've seen organizations go down really deep rabbit holes and turn it into months long bureaucratic exercise, even with small teams, like over-engineering it, like just make the call and move on and adjust the list as you need to. Um, but that's, it, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it has to be clear. Mm. I guess the last question I have on, on this, which is broadly on culture, um, organizations can get into bad habits yeah. and I think different generations deal with reprimand different ways. And I know that the question I'm asking is, in effect, a question about cultural reset. But it's how do you how do you advise founders to to sort of snuff out any kind of organizational bad habits that maybe were born out of a period when it was okay to do that, but then as it grows, like that's actually counterproductive. How do you encourage people to? To, to do that, have it pervade throughout the organization and not have it become something where people feel like they're being um, told off and then have it be part of a performance review. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah. For, from working with dozens of teams, scores of teams, um, the, the primary determinant of culture is the decision maker, is the leader. So first look in the mirror and understand how others are perceiving your actions, your behaviors. You can say whatever, you know, actions speak louder than words. Like as the leader, you're the role model and you're high up on the mountaintop, big ripples, like whatever sort of analogy you want to use. Uh, but first look to yourself and look to your leadership team. Mm -hmm. And if, if something can't or shouldn't be tolerated, well, first make sure that you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then the people that are, senior in the organization likewise um that i mean that's really where it starts so here's the trick question that is a follow-up to that one do you think steve jobs would have been able to wipe out that bad culture that he had left at apple when he got fired and if he had stayed in or do you think it was critical that he got kicked out to then come back in with that learning of what that was causing for it to happen. I mean, it's a hypothetical, we'll never know, but. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm not a student enough of, of his transition. I, I work actually really closely with somebody that was his head of HR. Um, so she's a, a mentor of mine, Deb Biondalillo, shout out to Deb. Um, yeah, she, she worked with, with Jobs uh, during Apple's rise and, and I'm not sure if she was there during the transition or not, but um, yeah, leaders, have a really tough time changing a culture that they themselves um, create, right? So really, really hard to do that. Um, how do you do it? How do you change a culture where you have certain behavioral norms that you, you want to adjust? Well, you gotta be, once again, be really direct, really direct. What's expected, what's okay, what's not okay. Uh, there's actually a, an assessment, I, I talked about Patrick Lencioni already, 
uh, he does a team effectiveness assessment. And I, I do probably one of these a month with different leadership teams. And one of the things we look at is behavioral norms and how do you interact with each other and who says this particular type of behavior is okay or not okay and how much alignment is there on the team. So, you know, it starts again with being explicit, yeah. writing it down, making sure people are clear about, you know, what, what the expectations are. Yeah. Cause this is, this is where, you know, one bad apple can spread because that one bad apple happens to bring in a lot of revenue can bring with it a lot of other negative behaviors. So it's, it's trying to nip it in the bud. The, the brilliant jerk phenomenon. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the salesperson that is tough to work with or the engineer who is brilliant, but doesn't treat people well. Yeah. 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 Hey, that's a, that's a particularly tough call at an early stage company where you feel like everything is hanging on um, that, that an individual's contributions. Yeah. And I, I'm not trying to sell a particular path there. It's a tough call and it's a judgment call, but you start with setting expectations and having adult conversations. Yeah. Well, that's a good advice to end on. I mean, we, we covered quite a bit and I also want to leave room for people to buy your book, attend your, your program and, and get the most out of it. So, um, I don't know if you have any final parting comments. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people management uh, processes get overdone, overcomplicated. And there's the flavor of the month that, uh, that tends to pop up as well. Um, I'd really encourage small organizations, high growth organizations to keep it simple. Um, be brilliant at the basics. If you're looking for some sort of cure-all, or like, like, let's just bring somebody in and we'll have this you know, magical transformation. We all wish it would work that way. But bottom line, you got to do the work. You know, be clear, set expectations, use good judgment. Um, and I just time and time again, you know, reinforce some of those you know, core ideas. Um, and I'd love to see more companies be more successful if they're able to face into the wind and, and deal with some of those you know, tough conversations. Mm. So- Hopefully the book, Scaling for Success, will help people figure that out. Uh, for HR leaders at high growth companies, you know, People Leader Accelerator, I'll start taking applications for the uh, January 2022 cohort soon. And, uh, you know, would love to connect with people on LinkedIn and provide whatever support I could. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that and all the wisdom in, the, in this episode. So with that, guys, until next time, see you later. Bye.